Amen. Last month, Kathy and I, we vacationed in Sebastian, Florida, home of the Mel Fisher Treasure Museum. Mel moved from California to Florida in 1963 to search for sunken treasure. His most famous discovery occurred in 1985 when he found the Nuestra Sonora de Atocha, a treasure-laden Spanish galleon bound for Madrid that sunk in a storm off the Florida coast. It was the largest underwater treasure find in history. Today, you can visit the Sebastian Museum and browse the Atocha's gold and silver treasure. And in a sense, this is what we want to do this morning. We're going to comb through some treasure. For that's how you should view Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This book is a treasure chest. It's full of the spiritual treasures that we discover in Christ Jesus. Well, the book begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. I'm glad this letter was delivered to the Ephesians by a courier. For if it had been sent by the post office, it would have caused some great confusion. What do you do with a letter that has two addresses? Paul writes to the believers who are in Ephesus and at the same time in Christ Jesus. These believers were living simultaneously in two locations. Physically, they were in Ephesus, but spiritually, they were in Christ. And we also have two locations, two simultaneous addresses, one physical and one spiritual. If Paul were writing to our church today, it would read, To the saints who are in Lilburn and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now Paul greets the Ephesians, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Wherever you're stationed physically, you'll find that location to be limited. I've checked, Lilburn has no beachfront. And if you like snow skiing, sorry, don't have it here. Physically speaking, every location has its limitations, but not so with our spiritual address. For in Christ, all God's blessings are available to us. Guys, in Christ, our lives butt up against another world. We're connected to the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to a spiritual realm where we can draw upon the love and life, and power, and joy, and presence, and peace of Almighty God. This means the key to living the Christian life, to overcoming sin in our lives, is to avoid getting landlocked. Don't get tied down to what's tangible and temporal. We need to see ourselves not just in Lilburn, but in Christ. We need to stay focused on who we are as children of God, what we have, as God's own. If you know who you are, you'll live like it. And if you know what you have, you'll use it. And for the rest of this chapter, Paul takes us on a tour in essence. He wants us acquainted with our blessings in Christ. Well, our treasure begins in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now here's our first blessing. We have been chosen. Out of the hordes of humanity who've walked this planet over the eons, God picked you to be His child. This means you didn't just wander into God's family. Your conversion was no fluke. God, has it, had, God had His eye on you before the foundations of the world. Here's a mind blower for you. Jesus went to the cross with you in mind. He continues in verse 5. He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by, Christ, by Jesus Christ to Himself. You know, it's true in other passages, the Bible teaches that our salvation depends on us choosing God. Acts 10 verse 43 says of Jesus, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. But the Bible also tells us that when we do believe, we discover that God chose us first. Someone said that when we walk into heaven, we'll look up and we'll read the banner over the pearly gates and it'll read, whosoever will may come. And then after we've walked through those gates, we'll turn back around and we'll look at the same banner from the other side and it'll say, chosen before the foundations of the world. We've been chosen. And Paul adds that we've been predestined for adoption. If you're in Christ, God has adopted you into his family. You're an adopted son or daughter. And you know, the adopted child has one big blessing. He or she always knows that they're wanted. An adopted child knows he's no accident. She's not a mistake. We weren't forced on a reluctant God. He cherishes us and he sacrificed us, sacrificed to make us his, his own. When you're adopted, you know you're loved. And here's why, why God adopted us. It's according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Here's why God adopted you, to show off his grace. You know, when I was saved, everyone knew there was no way a bozo like me deserved such favor. There's no way you or I did anything to earn God's blessing. It's given freely. We are proof that God is full of mercy and grace. And he continues, by his grace, he has made us accepted in the beloved. There's no sweeter emotion than to feel accepted, to be granted full membership, and in Christ, we have been accepted into the most exclusive club in the universe. We are part of the family of God. Also, in Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption. The word redemption means to buy back. You remember the childhood story of the gingerbread man? As soon as he came out of the oven, he popped up from the cookie sheet, and he began to taunt the grandma who baked him. He shouted to her, run, run as fast as you can, but nobody can catch the gingerbread man. And off he ran with grandma at his heels. She chased him through the city streets until she found him hiding in the window of the bakery. She grabbed the gingerbread man and she was leaving when the baker said, wait a minute, that'll be 10 cents. You've got to purchase that. Well, the grandma pulled a dime out of her purse and handed it to the baker. And as she took him home, the sweet grandma held the gingerbread man to her chest and whispered, First I made you, then I bought you. Now you're really mine. 
And if you'll listen closely this morning, you'll hear the Spirit of God make that very same statement to you. First I made you, then I bought you. Now you're really mine. And note how we've been redeemed or purchased. Through His blood, Paul tells us. The shed blood of Jesus was our purchase price. I read of Joe Kirkowski. He was America's blood donor champion. Joe lost an arm when he was six, so when World War II broke out, he was rejected for military service. But Joe could serve. He could serve by giving blood. And over his lifetime, Joe Kirkowski gave 31 gallons of blood and saved countless lives. Now remember, the human body only holds 10 to 12 pints of blood. So Joe gave all he had more than 20 times. Joe Kirkowski was quoted, Giving blood makes you feel like you are contributing life itself. There's no more precious a gift than life. Money can't buy the joy of giving blood to help someone who needs it. And those words could have been taken right out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus. For only one person has given more blood and experienced greater joy from doing so than Joe Kirkowski, and that's Jesus Christ. Millions have received life and redemption by the blood of Jesus. As the hymn puts it, Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonder-working power in the blood. And then Paul tells us that God redeemed us for the forgiveness of sins. Understand why God purchased you, why He redeemed you. He purchased you not to enslave you and make you miserable. He purchased you to set you free. God redeems us to forgive us. There's a company in Michigan that posted a notice on its bulletin board. It says, to err is human, to forgive is company policy. And forgiveness is company policy for God's kingdom. Our God majors on forgiveness. In fact, the end of verse 6 tells us the extent of His forgiveness. It's according to the riches of His grace. You know, sometimes I look at my bank account and I can get depressed. My bills exceed my balance. But what if I were Bill Gates Jr. and Dad was paying my bills? I could breathe a sigh of relief. Bill Sr. has more than enough to cover my bills. And we need to realize if we're in Christ, God is our Father. And He is the one who pays our debts out of the riches of His grace. That's why there's more than enough to cover you. He forgives us according to His riches, not our merit. And then verse 8 tells us that God made His grace to abound, or literally spill over, toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. In other words, this lavish grace was God's idea, no one else's. It pleased Him to be so kind to you and me. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in other words, when the time is right, when the age is over, then He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Friends, history is headed for a grand climax. Everything is going to mesh in Christ. The redeemed of all the ages are going to be forever together in Christ Jesus. 
verse 11 says, in him, and I hope it's sinking in. It's starting to, I hope. Where are all our blessings found? In him, in Christ Jesus. For in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have been given an inheritance. Did you hear of the heirs? They were eager to see the old man die and inherit his fortune. After his death, they all gathered around to hear the reading of the will. The lawyer started. I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. Don't worry, that's not going to happen to us. For God has for us an inheritance. His blessings are both now and forever. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And notice how the Ephesians were saved. They trusted. They believed. And 2,000 years later, this is still the same way that people are saved. Through grace, by faith, in Christ, for His glory. He says, In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In the ancient world, a seal was a mark of ownership. A merchant would dab his signet ring in the hot wax. And he would leave the impression on whatever it was he had purchased. It was the merchant's mark. It denoted what belonged to him. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is God's mark of ownership on us. The Holy Spirit's power, His influence in our lives is proof that we belong to God. Those who are in Christ will live lives that are impacted by the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is a big deal. He says in verse 14 that He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Greek word translated guarantee refers to the purchaser's earnest money. When you put down earnest money, it means you're going to come back and pay the rest later. Well, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. He's God's earnest money. He's the foretaste of the joys of heaven. He's the proof that what God has begun in our lives, He is going to finish. It's interesting, this Greek word, erebon, has another meaning as well. In antiquity, it referred to the dowry or the bridal price. A dowry was a financial pledge given by the husband to the family of his bride-to-be. It was proof of the genuine intentions he had to marry and to support their daughter. And this makes for a beautiful picture when applied to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our promise from the Lord Jesus. He is our assurance that the Lord Jesus intends to return and take us as His bride. You and I have been given tremendous blessings in Christ Jesus. But here's the question. Are we accessing those blessings? Are we tapping into those blessings? Reminds me of Henrietta Green, or Hetty as she was called by her friends. She was the world's greatest miser. When she died, her estate valued $95 million dollars. And yet this old gal was so tight with her money that she ate cold oatmeal every morning because she didn't want to pay to heat up her stove. 
The poor gal was a stingy, stingy woman. And I'm afraid the church today is full of heady greens. Believers don't utilize the blessings they've been given. So what if there's wealth in your bank if you never draw it out? And there are Christians who are spiritually starving while their pantry is stocked to the brim. In the rest of this chapter, Paul prays a prayer designed to help us take advantage of the blessings we've been given. Verse 15, he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And notice what he ties together there. Faith and love. True faith will yield love. E. Stanley Jones, he describes the change in his life. The day he met Jesus, he says, When I was converted and rose from my knees, the first thing I wanted to do was put my arms around the world. That's what happens. When you put your faith in Jesus, he puts in your heart a love for people. And then Paul prays, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now understand, the Bible teaches us about God. But that's where many Christians stop. For knowing about God and knowing God are not the same experience. God wants us to do more than just know about Him. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to sense His presence, be awed by His glory. He wants us to warm ourselves by the fires of His love. He wants us to encounter Him not only academically in Bible study, but spiritually as we open up our hearts to Him. There's an old hymn that reads, Beyond the sacred page, I seek Thee, Lord. My spirit pants for Thee, O living Word. Beyond the sacred page, He longs for the living Word. Paul prays that God will reveal Himself to us personally and intimately. He also prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In other words, not only that we'll know the truths of Scripture, but we'll have insight into how to apply them. How many folks have seen an apple drop from the tree before Isaac Newton deduced the law of gravity? Quite a few. James Watt was the first person to see, he wasn't the first person to see a steam kettle boil over. But from what he saw, he invented the steam engine. See, I've seen apples fall from trees, and I've seen steam come from kettles. But that's all I saw. My understanding lacked the eyes to apply the truth in beneficial ways. And we can't be so dense when it comes to spiritual blessings. We need to apply them to our lives. And so Paul prays. He lists three ways that they should be applied. He says that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? Now here's what Paul asked God to help us apply. First, the hope of our calling. Second, the riches of His inheritance in the saints. And then third, 
the exceeding greatness of his power. First, we all need to realize the hope of our calling. Hey, we're a child of God. We're heirs of the king. That makes you somebody. You don't need the fickle attention of your friends or of this world if you're somebody in Christ. Do you know the hope of your calling? Second, realize God considers you His inheritance. We mentioned that God gives us an inheritance, but He too has an inheritance. And guess what God longs for? Hold on to your hat now. It's you. You and I are God's treasures. He longs to spend eternity with us. We are truly cherished by the one person who really matters. And then third, Paul prays they realize the greatness of his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that exalted him to heaven, is available to us. Friend, acknowledge your weakness. Hold your little tin cup under God's spigot and watch him fill it to overflowing. Well, in verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Jesus is above the ranks of men and angels and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus has authority over both men and angels, over time and eternity, and over all that goes on in his church. Hope you know the head of the church isn't the pastor. It's not the rich contributor. It's not the elders. It's not even the members. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. Well, Ephesians 2 is a rags-to-riches story. And the main character is you. For Ephesians 2 describes how you grew up on the wrong side of the spiritual tracks, but in Christ you've overcome incredible odds to gain a glorious future. The story begins, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice our problem. It wasn't that we were maladjusted. It wasn't that we were immature. It wasn't that we were even sick or ill. Before we came to Jesus, you and I were dead. Death means separation. Physical death occurs when the spirit leaves the body, while spiritual death is our spirit separated from God. And spiritually speaking, we were all born stillborn. We inherited the sin of the first man, Adam. We were born in sin and isolated from the life of God from the start. I hope you know death has no degrees. A person is either dead or alive. And the same is true spiritually. You're either dead or you're not. You're in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Yet there are degrees to decay. In fact, did you hear about the musical composer who passed away? He's now decomposing. Get it? Get it? Decomposing. And spiritual decay comes in degrees. Sin corrupts. Sin rots out your soul, persists in certain habits, and they harden your heart. They sour your mind. 
Some folks are less rotten than others. But everyone without Christ, even good people, are spiritually dead. This was our problem. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul continues his description of us before we came to Christ. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, or Satan. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You were dead in sin. You were cut off from God. And thus you fell under the influence of Satan in this wicked world. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath just as the others. What a dilemma we were in. Dead to God. Sinners by nature, we sought fulfillment in sensual pleasures and in material gain. We were looking for love in all the wrong places. You and I made the age-old mistake of trying to meet a spiritual need with a physical thing or thrill. And yet all our attempts only led to more and more emptiness. Verse 4, but God. And let me tell you, those are the two most comforting words in all of the Bible. But God. God saw our dire plight. He could have allowed us to go our own way and just stumble into eternity without Him. But God. God crashed the party. He loved us enough to intervene in our misery. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us. Notice God is rich in what we need most. Mercy. It's been said God's throne isn't made of marble, but of mercy. In fact, the Bible refers to God's throne by the term mercy seat. Imagine God's throne. The place from where He rules and exercises authority is the very place where wayward people find forgiveness and hope. That should tell you something about our God. Once an old man was on his deathbed when a nearby relative whispered, he's going to receive his reward. The dying man heard it and he managed to utter, no, 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 I'm going to receive mercy. Only a fool wants what's coming to him, what he deserves. I want God's mercy. And then Paul explains That even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. God made us alive with spiritual life. He jump-started us by His Holy Spirit. Like a thief hot-wiring a car. Jesus took hold of God's wire in one hand. And He took hold of your wire. You know, they always called you a live wire. He took hold of your wire in the other hand and he put them together and he arced a spark. He initiated a connection. That's why it said, fear not that your life will come to an end, but rather that it'll never have a beginning. Real life only starts when we come to God and become alive to God through the Holy Spirit. And then God has raised us up together And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When I read this, I think of Air Force One. It's the President's Private 747. It has a thermonuclear protective shield, whatever that is. 
It has 19 TV monitors, 85 telephones, 70, I mean, seven laboratories, probably a private place where you can tweet. The president has his own stateroom, dressing room, office, dining room, and I'm sure all the peanuts, pretzels, and Biscoff cookies he wants. In the event of a nuclear war on earth, the president can lift off on Air Force One and he can sit comfortably above it all. And likewise, God has seated us in heavenly places. In Christ, you have all that you need to sit comfortably and peacefully even when all hell breaks loose in your life. You have an eternal perspective from which you can make the right calls here on earth. You know, ironically, the first step in the Christian life is not a step at all. It's a sit. The first step is to learn to sit. Before we do anything for God, we need to see what God has done for us. Before we stand for God, we first need to sit with God. Before we can impact our circumstances, we need to find rest in the midst of those circumstances. You and I have been seated together in heavenly places in Christ. And I love verse 7 because it tells us what we're going to be doing for all eternity. What we'll be doing in heaven. As a matter of fact, I got a list for you this morning. It's the top 10 reasons to look forward to heaven. You ready for it? Top 10 reasons to look forward to heaven. Number 10, you can begin the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art here. Number nine, you can get an answer to the question, why? Number eight, in heaven, touched by an angel isn't just a television rerun. Number seven, soul music for eternity. That's going to be pretty cool. Number six, real golden arches. Number five, the great view. Number four, no pain, no gain becomes no pain, no pain. Number three, when you say, oh God, you'll hear, what? Number two, mansions with no mortgages. And the number one reason to look forward to heaven, totally fat-free. But here in verse 7, Paul gives us the real number one reason to look forward to heaven. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is going to take all eternity For Jesus to explain His grace to us. For all the ages to come, He'll peel back layer after layer after layer of His kindness toward you and me. For all eternity, we'll learn of the richness of His kindness toward us. Here's a quote that's sort of funny, but it's really true. Millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Think about that for a minute. Eternity is going to be a long time. Will you be bored? How will you spend eternity? There's only one thing that will keep us mesmerized for all eternity. And that's the grace and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago now, our family, we were in the car, we were headed home. We were discussing how God gives out rewards in heaven. Well, Zach's always been our thinker. 
even at seven years old, he was a budding theologian. And so he asked me, he said, Dad, if we're going to have everything in heaven, what's left for God to give to us as a reward? That was a good question. And I was kind of groping for an answer. When the silence was broken by Natalie, my sweet daughter, she answered for me. She told her brother, she said, Zach, God will reward us with a hug and a kiss. Could there be a greater reward? God will spend the ages to come showing us His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to fill up our eternity with hugs and kisses. Each day will be more thrilling than the last. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. What prompted God to butt in and save you? Well, make no mistake about it. It had nothing to do with our performance or our goodness or our righteous deeds or our noble heritage. Paul declares, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's prompted by His grace. flows from God's heart. It's a gift we receive. Paul adds, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Hey, if God's blessing were wages earned then I could brag and take credit. Rather than abolish my pride, salvation would play right into its hands. God is smarter than that. For me to be saved, I have to humble myself. I have to admit that I'm a slacker. All salvation costs any of us is our own pride. And then verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's an old saying, good works never make us fit for God, but God does make us fit for good works. Like buying a used car, God accepts us as is, but He sure doesn't leave us that way. He works to refurbish our lives. He goes to work turning our ugliness into beauty. Paul says we are God's workmanship, or literally His poema. The word is our word for poem. We are God's special work of art. Our lives are the canvas on which God paints. On which He expresses His thoughts and His will and His heart. Verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, Now, in the Old Testament, God distinguished Gentiles from Jews by an external physical mark called circumcision. It highlighted that there were separate people groups, Jews and then everyone else, or Gentiles. And at the time, you Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Since God's salvation had been given to Israel and since Gentiles were alienated from Jews, the Gentiles had no hope. Not because God was unwilling to be gracious, but outside of Israel, Gentiles had limited access to God. In that sense, race was a barrier to grace. But things have changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And, and you, can't, 
You can't overestimate how far off Jews and Gentiles really were. Jews and Gentiles were about as far apart as the North America hunting club in PETA. Pretty far off. Jews were religious and principled. Gentiles were secular and pragmatic. The two groups had zero in common. But when a Jew and a Gentile receives the free gift of Jesus, Paul says that suddenly the distance is erased. The distinctions are all abolished. Instantly, they're standing on common ground. They're brought near, are literally compressed together through the blood of Jesus. People are united who previously had nothing in common. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And notice, Jesus doesn't just give peace. He himself is our peace. It's his presence. It's knowing that he's near. It's holding his hand. That's what brings about a sense of peace and rest and security in our lives. Hey, don't pray for God's peace. Pray that God will reveal in your life the presence of Jesus. For Jesus is our peace. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the source of the friction and hostility, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. You see, it was the Jewish law, the law of Moses. This was the culprit that kept Jews and Gentiles separated. Its customs and rituals created a different culture for Jews that made it difficult for them to relate to Gentiles and for Gentiles to relate to Jews. And the myriad of distinctions created by the law produced a pride in the Jews. They had a judgmental spirit. They had the law. Nobody else did. They kept it. No one else did. But by replacing the law with Jesus, God tore down the reasons for our division. The, Jews belonged to Je- uh, the law belonged to the Jews, but Jesus belongs to anyone who has faith. The law was exclusive to Jews. Jesus is inclusive. And likewise for us. Hey, we are male and female. We are white and black. We are rich and poor. We are married and single. We are young and old. But we too can come together through our Lord Jesus Christ. Previously, we were as different as Jews and Gentiles. But through Jesus Christ, God makes us one. Jesus is the one commonality that's greater than any of our differences. And through Him, we all stand together, shoulder to shoulder, on level ground. And Jesus desires to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He doesn't want us to remain divided. He doesn't want there to be black Christians and white Christians. He wants to bring us all together and make one new person, a new type of Christian. People that are united together in Christ. Jesus died to make us one. I think we've missed the point of Christianity if we separate into subcultures. Well, there's the black church and the white church. Or there's the contemporary church and the traditional church. The only division that exists is in Christ and apart from Christ. Those that are truly Christians are one. And then verse 16 And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. God makes us one by insisting that we all come through the same door, the cross of Jesus Christ. And he came and preached peace to those 
who were afar off and to those who were near. The gospel's one size fits all. It's every man's answer. Jew and Gentile, hipster and button down, redneck and urban. Doesn't matter who you are. We're all one in Christ. The gospel fits all. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. It's the same Holy Spirit that dwells in each of us. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once the Gentiles were strangers to God's household. We lacked a passport to God's blessing, but now we've been adopted into the family. We've been born again. And Jesus is building His house, namely the church. For we're told in verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets, they played a special role in the early church. They established foundational doctrine and practice. But Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one load-bearing rock on which everything else rests. Many a church has learned the hard way. Remove Jesus and it all comes crumbling down. And in Christ, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And today, Jesus continues to build. Each of us, you and me, are stones in God's building. Today, God is building a temple. The church is that temple. In the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was God's dwelling place on the earth. But today, God's Spirit hangs out in His church. Where does God dwell today? He dwells among us. He hangs out in the church. Wouldn't it be cool if Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain got the reputation in our town that this is the place where you can find God? That here is where God hangs out. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning for these two amazing chapters and the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would relish these blessings, we would study these blessings, but that we would also apply them and live our lives in light of them. Lord, help us to know what is the hope of our calling. Help us to know, Lord, what are the riches of your inheritance in the saints. And Lord, help us to know the greatness of your power toward us. We love you, Lord. We ask that you energize us and equip us, Lord, for the challenges we face. Lord, we want to be bright lights for Jesus Christ in this dark world. And we pray that you'll fill us and overflow us and use us in great ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't we all stand together? Don't forget, guys, we'll meet back tonight at 6.30 for our big men's night. encourage you guys to be here for that. Um, If you have a special need this morning, if you'd like special prayer, we have some folks right over here by the prayer room. They'd be happy to take a moment.